episode 243. And as my great uncle is would say, Isidore, he would have said in the 1970s, look who's here. <laughs> Seattle sports talk legend, Dave Grosby, David Grosby, the Gros, filling in for Hot Shot Scott. Now, you know why Uncle Liz Gros would say, look who's here? No, I don't. Well, he was about 97 at the time, and he just forgot all of our names, all of his nephews, all of his great nephews. <laughs> he knew he recognized us, so he would say to all of us when we appeared in his door, look who's here, because he didn't That's know. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. For those of us losing our, losing our minds slowly, uh, that's a perfect way to handle it. Look who's here. But I'm not saying look who's here to you because I, I know I recognize you and I can't come up with your name. I can come up with your name, Gros. <laughs> you look great. How you doing? Give us an update on the Gros. Mitchie, I'm doing just fine. It's great to be on the show with you again. Um, I have nothing to report of any interest. I yep. mean, I cut the cord from cable. I'm now, I'm now like a millennial. <laughs> Streaming everything. Really? Joining something for a month and then dropping it and joining another thing for a month and I'm dropping impressed. it. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. No yeah. cable. How could you do no this? No cable. Oh. I, it took a lot of a lot of gumption. Now, how do you watch the Mariners play if you don't have cable or don't you watch the Mariners play, Gross? I, I do watch the Mariners play <laughs> because the, there's a streaming service called FUBU. Oh, FUBU. F-U-B-U. Okay. That carry as Root Sports. Yeah. And that's how you so, watch them. There was a little bit of an issue last month because FUBU, who has a lot of sports stations, does not have TNT or TBS. Oh. So I could not watch the Kraken playoffs. Oh, geez. So I, had, I dumped it for, for the Mariners for a month, six weeks actually, to watch the, the Kraken in the playoffs. And then I kind of got into the NBA playoffs oh. and watched the Stanley Cup finals and then went back to FUBU and the Mariners about a week ago. Well, I'm impressed I could never cut the cord. I'll never, I'll go to my grave having never cut the cord. As long as there is cable, I think I will be a cable customer, Gross. I understand that, Mitchie. <laughs> my wife did not want to go. She went kicking and screaming. <laughs> but there comes a point in time where you got you to gotta move forward. Uh, and you move forward. This is episode 243. It's available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe and rate us, please, on Apple. Did you know that I host several weekly short-form shows available to Mitch Unfiltered patrons? Cost $5 a month. Peace shows with Danny O'Neill and Slim. Hawk and Jason Churchill and Joey Doyle. And if the $5 is legitimately a problem and you're craving more content, just email me, Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. Did you watch a little of the U.S. Open on Father's Day Sunday, Graz? I did, Mitchie. And first thing that comes to mind is we both grew up uh, in the Eastern time zone. Yes. Basically. And you know that Saturday, the golf was on till 1115 <laughs> at night. And today ended what? At 10 o'clock probably. 10 o'clock at night. Yes. It was never like that when we were kids, was it? <laughs> no, it was not I like that. I never remember that. So, I mean, I, I got a buddy of mine from college who's living in Florida. Yeah. Who was just, the leaders haven't even teed off yet and we're having Sunday dinner. <laughs> That's right. For That's crying right. out loud. So, it was, right. it was weird they did it that way. I did watch the Open. Um, I went from thinking Thursday that, Jesus, doesn't look like a U.S. Open to me. Yeah. Guy shooting 62 and everything right. to, to seeing, you know, the, the course really stood up well. And uh, it was a great test on um, on Sunday and a really, really, really hard-earned victory. I was uh, looking forward to it for years because I have been privileged enough to be able to play Los Angeles Country Club a couple of two, three, four oh, times. Wow. So when I heard that they were hosting it, I thought this was going to be 
God's gift to golf. And then everybody, of course, complained about it. It's too easy. There's too many blind shots. The members took all the tickets, so there's not the ambiance of, of a normal. It seems like it was a flop. And then you get a winner in Wyndham Clark, who no non-golf fan has ever heard of. So maybe this is going to become a forgettable U.S. Open. Like Chambers Bay? Like Chambers Bay. Well, at least Chambers Bay, we had Jordan Spieth, right? We, we did. We have a guy that... Uh, I just mean guys complaining. I love the, I love oh, the course, but yeah. people complaining about yes, it. You know, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, you had you had names in, in, into the very end. I mean, you had the best player in the world, you right. know, alive and Ricky Fowler, who's a pretty well-known guy alive. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, Rory McElroy, of course, you know, was, was right there the entire way. So I, I think it'll go down as a pretty good open. So my weekend was the U S open with a little dash of spice on Friday night, Gross. I got to tell you about my Friday night dinner. I think you and the listeners might be interested in my Friday night. So my wife and I decide we're going to try out this little Italian restaurant in Redmond, Washington. Okay. The two of us go out there about 7, 7.30, whatever it is. We walk in. It's a little place. There's a lot of right. people around the hostess stand. And I say, you know, we didn't have a right. reservation. How long for a di- for a table of two, at which time the hostess says it'll probably be about 30 minutes. You can stand around here where there's really no place to sit because there's others there and it's a small place. Or right. we'll take your phone number, Graz. And we'll call you when your table's ready. Okay. So I look at my wife and say, what do you want to do? And we decide, since there's nowhere to sit around the hostess stand, that we would go across this little street in Redmond to a bar and we'll have a drink and we'll wait for them to call us and then we'll go over. So far, no problems. So no, no problems. So 15 minutes becomes 20 minutes. 20 minutes becomes 30 minutes, at which time I say to my wife, have they called you yet? They, I gave them your number. No. They haven't called me. Let me go over across the little street and see where we stand while you finish your drink. So I go across okay. the street 30 minutes later. The lady at the hostess stand says, Mitch, you're Mitch, right? You've got one more party in front of you and then you're up. Are you going to stay here or are you going to go across the street and we'll call you? I said, well, my wife is still enjoying a drink across the street, Graz. So I, right, right. I'll go get her. I'll finish her. We'll finish up and we'll pay the tab over there and then we'll come back. Okay. I then walk across the street, and as I'm walking across the street, my wife apparently is watching one of these ESPN networks where across the bottom line, she has seen something about John Morant being suspended for 25 or 30 games by the right. NBA. And as I'm coming, I said to her, well, one, there's one couple ahead of us, and then we go, let's finish up. And she says, what did this guy Morant do that cost him 25 games. And as I start to explain, I literally, Graz, had not sat down next to her. As I'm trying to explain to her what Morant did twice to earn a 25-game suspension, I see her sirens, and I see police cars flying oh, at, and they're pulling up at the corner. One, two, three, four, five, six police cars are pulling up at, at the Italian, right across at the Italian. I said, what the hell's going on? I just walked out of there. A gunshot or two goes off. Whoa. A guy gets hit. An 83-year-old man gets hit oh with, a, with a stray bullet in the arm. The shooter apparently was sitting on the seats next to the hostess stand. Oh, my God. They are claiming that it was an accidental firing. He had a gun with him legally, and it just went off. 
and somebody got hit. Apparently, as soon as this happened, he left. So now he's on the loose. You've got police officers running down the streets to try to find this guy. And I'm oh like, God. I'm like Mr. Magoo. I had literally just what? Remember Mr. Magoo? He walks out of things and all hell breaks <laughs> loose. I had just walked out. Incredible. All, all of this is happening. Gunshots at this Italian. At least one, maybe two gunshots at this little Italian restaurant as we were about to go back in to get our table. Grimes. So you missed it by like two minutes. I you could think, have been. You could have been in the room when the when the shot was course, fired. Of course. Well, from what I could tell, the guy who walked in with the gun. He must have crossed me as I was walking out of the restaurant after checking on our table. He must have been walking in. And then I walked across the street. His gun went off as I walked across the street. And the rest, as they say, is history. Thank God nobody got hurt. They have since found the guy. They're calling it the Redmond Police, an accidental shooting that the gun went off. I don't know about guns, what, what, why it wasn't in safety or why he felt the need to have a gun at a little Italian restaurant on a Friday night. Maybe he was planning on seeing me. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't approve of Mitch Unfiltered. I don't know. But this was, this was too much excitement. Of course, as soon as this all happens, I go back across the street for a third time to start asking questions. What's going on over here? My wife is Freaking out. Would you get back over here? Let's get out of here, for God's sake. Let's get so out of here. Stay and eat. No. You didn't, didn't stay and eat. No, they closed, they closed the restaurant oh, I'm sure down. They did. Yeah, and, my, yeah. and my wife's like, you realize that there's somebody on the streets now with a gun that just went off, and we're standing here out on the corner. Can we please, honey, get in the car and go to a different restaurant? Please get in the car and she let's was go. Smart. And so off we went. But what's that you need? <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds like you. It sounds like us living downtown for crying out loud and peaceful Redmond. Peaceful Redmond, Unbe- unbelievable. Yes, the little Italian restaurant that we chose to go to had a had an accidental gun shooting where an 83 year old man. They brought him out. They put him in the ambulance. He got hit in the arm. I Jeez. think he's going to be okay. But my goodness. A lot yeah, of excitement. Uh, too much excitement, uh, well, Graz, at my age. Too much excitement. Well, most definitely too much at any age, for crying out loud. <laughs> so I thought I'd share that with you as we begin episode 243. All right, guests on this episode 243. I'm going to list the guests, one of which I haven't talked to yet. So <laughs> I'm hopeful that I'm going to be able to catch up with this guy. But the guests, about three months ago, Graz, we had a guy by the name of Kevin McGinnis on the show. Mm-hmm. He made national news about 90 or 100 days ago because he decided to go on a 100-day diet where he ate nothing but McDonald's. Have you read about this guy? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And he came on our show and he explained why, because his theory is that Americans are overweight, not because of what we eat. It's because of how much we eat. So he's going to eat McDonald's, nothing but McDonald's for 100 consecutive days, but he's going to eat half a meal, each meal, half a meal okay. for breakfast, half a meal for lunch, half a meal for dinner, and he's going to report on what his weight is, what his cholesterol and his sodium and his blood pressure is so he, after the going, 100 days. He's going without vegetables because there are no vegetables. <laughs> he's going without fruit because there's no McFruit. I guess there's maybe might be orange juice. Am I right? <laughs> Orange juice. <yes. laughs> okay, so. Yes. All right. He had French fries every single day for 100 days. And in wow. some cases, to order French fries. The 100 days are now over. I don't want to spoil it, but he's coming back on the show to report what his weight is, 
what his doctor said when he visited after the 100 days and all of the blood readings and, and all the different things. Is this Fuck a young man? No, he's 57 or 58 years Holy old. Holy Toledo. Yeah. I'm surprised he's still alive. <laughs> he's not only alive, but he'll tell you he's thriving. He's going to tell you exactly what happened. over. The, in fact, I don't want to give it away, but on day 40 of the 100, his wife joined him in the exercise. Wow. So she ate nothing but McDonald's for 60 consecutive days in his hundred, and he's going to report what her weight is and all the different things. So no McVegetables. You know who else else says he's never eaten a vegetable? Who hasn't eaten a vegetable? Al Michaels. Al Michaels has never eaten a vegetable? Google Al Michaels and vegetables. (laughs) And you'll see how he says he he tried one, a bite once, and he Uh, never has had one since. All right, guest number two, I hope, will be John Hawkins, the longtime golf scribe on the U.S. Open at the exclusive Los Angeles Country Club. And then guest number three is Lindsay Barra. You know the last name, B-E-R-R-A. She's the granddaughter, Graz, of the late, great Yogi Berra. She's also the executive producer of this new documentary that's out in theaters as we speak about the life of Yogi Berra, the Ten Rings, the funny remarks, the man behind it all. Lindsay Berra will join us on this episode 243. Well, that sounds great. It's one fascinating guy, Yogi Berra. Casey Stengel said he was the best player he ever played for him. Episode 243, Graz, doesn't happen without... Our partners, our sponsors, like John Waterstrat, Fireside Home Solutions, the flagship Bellevue location just underwent a facelift, and it was beautiful to begin with. Whether it's a brand new fireplace inside or out, garage doors, begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com. The Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage, if you go by everything that you read or hear about interest rates and the Fed, you'd never buy a house, so Why are houses still being sold? Because of creative mortgage people like Jordan Flowers and his team. If you're buying a home, a second home, an investment piece, give Jordan a call. He may surprise you. 425-890-2957. When you think about Daniel's broiler, the first thing that comes to mind, the best steaks and seafood in the world, prepared perfectly and over-the-top pampering and service from the moment that you walk through the door. But don't forget, outdoor dining at Daniel's Broiler this summer. On the deck at Leshy, the seaplanes at South Lake Union, overlooking the world at Bellevue Place, danielsbroiler.com. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof, evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. And Zeke's Pizza, celebrating a complete makeover of their brand new mobile app. Remote ordering has gotten easier than ever. You need to download it and try it. Get yourself a Cherry Bomb or a Puget Pounder right to your door. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Episode 243 with my friend Dave Grosby begins... Right now. Unfiltered. Everybody is on their collective ear about Jackson Smith and Jigba. And all I would say about being on your ear about a wide receiver during mandatory minicamps is 
go back over the last many, many years, there's always a wide receiver that you're on your ear about during right. mandatory minicamps. Unfiltered. If they had a shortstop that right now was hitting 280 with 15 home runs and was an American League all-star shortstop, instead of being a game or two under 500 or over 500, they might be five or seven games, four or five or six games over 500 and in position to make the run that we're sitting here waiting for. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 243 is now officially underway. Hotshot Scott is out and in for Hotshot Scott. The one and only Dave Grosby. The Gros who's going to answer all of our problems. <laughs> Gros, the Mariners won two out of three against the White Sox to end that homestand. As you and I sit here on this episode 243, 35 up, 35 down, with 92 games to go. Still yep. within three games of the third and final wild card, but they've got about three or four teams that they got to skip ahead of to be able to get up there. What are we going to do? How does Graz feel about the, the mediocre Seattle Mariners with all of our aspirations to start the year? Yeah, and you know, last year what were they twenty nine and thirty nine, and then yes. then went, went on crazy. Street. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that Julio Rodriguez is is getting back to where he was last year, and Teo Hernandez hasn't been as advertised yet, but also is showing some signs. Kelnick, I mean, a bases clearing uh, hit, and and looks really good. Robbie Ray getting hurt at the start of the season kind of put the rotation off a little bit, but they've got good arms there. Mm-hmm. They've hit. With some bullpen arms, and and yet they haven't been able to hit consistently. No. I don't know how many teams are between them and Houston. I think Houston is the third wild Three card. Three teams between them and Houston, Gras. Three. Okay, which makes it tougher. But um, I remain optimistic because uh, you know I think the most important thing is having good pitching, and it just seems to me that they do have that good pitching, and they, they've got a they got a really sound rotation. You know, it's got a bunch of young guys in it with Castillo. Uh, the bullpen looks strong. To me, that's the sort of that's that's the easiest way to string together a winning streak. It's awfully hard to do when you don't have good pitching. And you know, Houston's going to play better the second half of the season. The Yankees are already playing pretty good. Baltimore is 17 games over 500. I mean, they're unbelievable. Right. Looked at it today, Mitchie, and I think they need 55 wins in it's the last fun. 92 games. Gosh, it's funny that you say that. I was going to lay them on you, Gros, but you you beat me as you've been doing for 25 years to the point. <laughs> um, if you if you look at the present standings. The third and final wild card team are the Yankees. I think are the Yankees at this moment. They would win at this present rate 89 games. Okay. The third wild card at this rate that we're going would be 89 and 73. That means the Mariners have to get to 90 wins for all intents and purposes. And to do that from where they sit today, they'd have to go 55 and 37, right. play 600 ball, over their last 92 games. Now, we saw them do that last year. So they I didn't. guess so I guess the answer to the question that I'm going to ask you Graz is, can they do it again? As is without making any trades, without making any roster adjustments, can this team which has been fighting with 500 I mean, I don't think they've been more than two or three games over and I don't think they've been more than two or three games under for like two months. For goodness sakes, they have been, as I like to call it, the epitome of mediocrity. Can this team go 55 and 37 
over the last 92 games. Will this team? They, well, that's 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 a big games. it's a big change. Will versus can. <laughs> yeah. They can. They have the the raw materials to do it. Will they? I I, I honestly don't know. And and I I get a feeling Mitch that that the Yankees can play better than they played up to this point. It may be more than 90 wins uh-huh. and that may be out of reach. Uh-huh. But I do think they can go 55 and 37. What are we what are we talking about what you need to have happen here? You need two or three more guys to hit better. Certain guys have just been, you know, bust. I mean, Colton, what, what is it about second base for the Mariners that, that they can't find someone who can hit there? I don't think they're going to go status quo with the roster either. No. I think I think they will try and make a change or two. But the, the fact is, how many teams are, are out of it at this point? I mean, not a whole lot. So the picking is going to be fairly slim. I think it's unlikely at this point. I think that they could wind up with 85, 90 wins and not make the postseason. Right. They don't. It's going to be a disappointment, obviously. And that's my question. How big of a disappointment is it if in 2023, after all that we talked about during the offseason and how close they were in last season's playoff run, how disappointing will it be? How much of a failure will it be to not make the playoffs? And then where are we pointing the finger before I give you my blasphemous idea? I have an idea. It's not an idea for 2023 per se. It's okay. more of an idea for this era, for this window of Seattle Mariners baseball. But before I get to that, where okay. will you be pointing the finger? Well, will the Gras be pointing the finger at the end of the season if they fall short? You got to look at the Texas Rangers who spent a lot of money. A lot of money. To get to where they got. And you look at the Mariners who had a, a 90-win team back-to-back seasons led by a young core, young pitching staff core. You added one big-time free agent to it, and that was it. So you got to point the finger at Jerry Depoto. You did a great job of, of developing talent, which they've done, and you had you had a lot of homegrown talent. You had the opportunity to strike while the iron was hot, and you didn't. Is that Jerry Depoto, or is that the ownership for not spending the money? That I, I, I don't know. Jerry would say, if he were on the podcast with us, he'd say, hold on, Graz, hold on. I signed Luis Castillo to a mega deal. Right. I signed Julio Rodriguez to a mega deal. Yeah, I didn't sign some big name free agents during the offseason. I signed our own guys, and then I went out and fortified it with guys like Teoscar Hernandez and different guys like that. I'd go back to the payroll and say, look at the payroll you're at, though. I mean, I don't know who else you look at, but the Italian evaluators. They looked at the team and they thought they had a better team than, than maybe they did. So when you're at this level, when you're winning consistently, Mitch, I mean, the, 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 the floor is raised. You do point the finger of blame. And while it's always the players who ultimately have to take the most blame, they're the ones who are out there playing. Right. Put them together the way they did. You know, I, I think you're also looking at the manager, frankly. But I, I think Scott Service has done a very good job. So. It'll be it'll be there'll be plenty of blame to go around if it doesn't if it doesn't work out. But I, I think you got to start with the guy who put the team together. Well, let me tell you something. If they don't make the playoffs this year, next year comes and we're asking the same questions. They've got right. a great rotation. They've got a great bullpen. Do they have enough offense to win the ninety two, the ninety five games? And once they get into the playoffs, are they good enough to not just make the playoffs? I don't think any of us are satisfied with just making the playoffs. We want to see during this window of opportunity, the Mariners win a world championship. And as constituted, it's not working the way they look at it, which is let's have the best rotation. Let's have a great bullpen. And then let's cobble together a lineup 
an offensive mm-hmm. lineup. They've got the star in Julio Rodriguez. I think we all think he's still going to be that superstar. But do they have another guy? And when you look around and you look at Texas and you look at Anaheim and you look at the Yankees and you look at the Dodgers and you look at the Braves, how many of those teams that are true World Series contenders, Graz, have two guys at least, two all-star, two everyday all-star players in their lineup. Just about everyone. I could go right through it. And the Mariners have the great starting rotation, and they have the good bullpen, and they have Julio, but they really – everything outside of Julio is kind of – let's cobble together the the Suarez's of the world and the – Teoscar Hernandez is of the world, and let's see if we can do it in that way. Well, I think their 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 hope is that Kelnick is going to be one of those players, and he may be. I mean, maybe. he's not yet, maybe, but he's a lot better than he was last year. You're right; they don't have the they don't have the the requisite superstars on offense, and and Ty France is a pretty good offensive player too. Um, it, it's interesting, Mitch, that they're having the All Star game here this year. And we remember the last time it was here in 2001, I believe there were, what, seven or nine Mariners on that team? Who are their all-stars this year? Julio, probably. I mean, yeah. if you compare him to other outfielders at this point, I mean, he's, he's picked it up, but he's hitting 240. They'll find a way to get home him. 12 runs, 39. Right, yeah, they, they're going right, to find a way You're right. They'll find a way, but yeah. that's that's the point. Yeah, that's the they're point. They're having to find a way, yes. whereas the Mariners in 2000 had the starting pitcher. They, they, the had, they had Ichiro. They, they had the whole team, basically. That's, that's exactly right. So here's my crazy idea. All right. I'm going to lay it on you. It's going to be very unpopular. People who are listening to this are going to shut off Mitch Unfiltered, and they're going to say, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, and maybe I don't. And listen, I just want to see the team during this window strike gold. And I just wonder if they're not going to spend the boppo dollars that it takes in free agency to go get one of these 1A's, one of these all-stars to put along with. I'm talking about everyday ball players, whether they play third base or first base yep. or outfield, somebody that's in the middle of the lineup that's going to be the 1A to Julio, the Corey Seager to Simeon, the the the, the Shohei Otani to Mike Trout, the second guy. Tatis to Machado. Their offensive talent in the minors is in the way depths of the low. They're in A ball. The Harry Fords and the and the Cole uh, Cole Young, I think, is his name. Offensive prospects that the Mariners have are years away from being a factor for the big club. So, how do you get that all-star, everyday player that's under club control? Dare I bring up the idea that you trade one of the pitchers? That you say, hey. Yeah, we've got a great rotation. Yeah, we love Logan Gilbert. Yeah, we love George Kirby. Yeah, we love Luis Castillo. Yeah, we like the new young guys. We need an all-star caliber everyday player. And the way to get that is to be willing to trade one of these young starting pitchers. And the guy that I've got my eye on, and I love him. This is not me being disrespectful or saying, okay, The guy that I have my eye on is Logan Gilbert. I look at Logan Gilbert and I see a guy who is 26 years old. He's got four more years, I believe, of club control. He's making peanuts, $700,000 or $750,000 this year. I ask myself all week this week, I've been riding around in the car asking myself, if they were willing to very quietly listen 
to offers for Logan Gilbert, a guy who's got all that going for him and all that club control still left, if they were to make him available in phone calls, could they bring back a young, all-star caliber, everyday player? And if the answer is yes, should they? And I'm not saying even before the deadline. I'm not talking about this year. Yeah, I don't think it happened this year. I don't think it happened this year either. But in the offseason, you know, they've got this guy, Wu. They've got Bryce. They've got other yeah, yeah. They got other young. Robbie Ray will be coming back too. So. Well, at some point, Robbie Ray will come back. But is it time for Jerry DePoto and Mariners ownership to do something they haven't wanted to do? Just consider what one of these young guys in the rotation might be able to bring them back in, in, in terms of compensation. And I'll say one more thing, Diagraz. Okay. In three or four years, three years probably, they're going to have to pay Logan Gilbert. Right. And they're going to have to pay George Kirby. Both of those guys in about three years are going to come calling for $200 million, $250 million contracts. In your heart of hearts, do you think when that happens, the Mariners will sign both of them? Will they both play out the next eight or 10 years in Seattle or because of where the Mariners are from a budget perspective, might they let one go at, at that point because they won't be able to afford all these different contracts? Well, if they had both of them and, and what you say is true and they were going to be lining up for $200 million deals, it means they've been very, very good for the three years you're talking about. It means you have virtually three aces. I don't know that I'd do it. Now, I think, uh, let me talk to the Logan Gilbert thing specifically and the four years of, of under under contract. Now, yeah. Mitchie, if you're, if you're a general manager, knowing how important pitching is and everything like that, and knowing how important club control is, are you going to trade a young, everyday player with a couple of years of control, a star player, for a pitcher in the same spot? An everyday player for a pitcher in the same spot? I don't know. I don't know that you'd do that. I don't know. I don't know that you'd do that. So you're saying that so, Logan Gilbert may not bring back what I think he could bring back. Is that right? I think he could bring back a star player, but I don't know that he could bring back a star player who's 23 years old with four or five years of club control left. That's what I'm saying. The thing is, you're, you've got other arms in your, your system as well, as we're seeing this year. Mm-hmm. We've seen two guys pop up this year. And DePoto is pretty much drafted favoring pitching for a couple of years now. You could afford to do something like that. Yeah. I'd prefer to do it with, look, I think the reason why you build up a farm system with great prospects is twofold. One is to have them play for you. The other is they're the fodder that can get you great players. A big part of that, of not falling in love with the farm system too much is that you, you just want those guys, only those guys that come up. And very rarely is that a cir- circumstance where you'll win with. You got to be willing to trade top prospects if you can get big time players for them. So I would be inclined to look at that first before I would look at taking a, an established pitcher, to, to me, an established starter is just, it's worth worth his weight in gold. Look, I completely agree with you. I'd rather trade the prospects too. But what, what the prospects get you, Graz, you've seen this for a million years. What oh, no, no. I'm, what the I'm, prospects I'm, get you is they get you a really good hitter that's becoming a free agent at the end of the year, a rent-a-player, a guy. If you, if do, you do it during the season, Mitchie, but I think if you do it in the offseason, you, you could do it a little bit differently. I think it's just going to come down to digging deep and spending more money. I think it's a really interesting idea, though. I mean, it's a, it's a great great point to bear because you've got to do something if you're not going to, just going to spend money on free agents. Well, we're walking around. And I've, I've heard worse ideas than that. Well, we're all walking around loving our rotation. 
And we all walk around as Mariner fans, and I'm sure the Mariners organization as well, walking around saying, the one thing we're not going to touch is our rotation. We got a great rotation. Well, at some point, you're banging your head against the wall trying to score runs for that rotation. If, if Luis Castillo is a great arm, and mm-hmm. George Kirby is a great arm, and Bryce Miller is a great arm, and Brian Wu is a great arm, and Robbie Ray is coming back, it's possible that maybe you think about the unthinkable, which is taking uh, one of those arms and parlaying it into a middle-of-the-order aircraft carrier, Graz, that can help him score runs every day. I like that idea, but I will I will say, what if they go 55 and 27 and get the 90 wins, and, and that's three straight years of it with, with that young rotation intact? Would that change your opinion on it? Yeah, I mean, if you yeah, I'm, I'm, that, I'm willing to wait on the lost. It's 55 and 37. I'm willing to wait. Forgive me. I, I'm willing to wait to the off season, and if they can show me that over 162 games they can win 90 plus two years in a row and get into the three. playoffs or three years in a row, get into the playoffs two years in a row and make some hay. Well, then I feel I, like I, things are going in the right direction. Yeah, then I then I then I'm willing to say, hey, your cobbling together of the Mariners' offense is doing okay. It's doing enough, but I don't think I'm going to see that because I think what I'm going to see is a lot of what I've seen. I don't expect the Mariners to do, you know, after 70 games or 35 and 35. Yeah, there's always last year. They were 29 and 39, and then they went on this great streak. So we all have that in the backs of our minds, don't we? But said if they look like a 500 team after 70 games and they smell like a 500 team after 70 games and they taste like a 500 team after 70 games, they just might be a 500. It might just be an 81 and 81 or 84 and, you know, whatever it is, 78 team. At that point, what are you doing during the offseason? Are you still going to go with the game plan of cobbling these veteran hitters? You know, go out and change. All right, Teoscar Hernandez is gone. We'll bring somebody else in like him. Uh, maybe Suarez will leave and we'll bring in somebody. Are you going to still go with that game plan? At what point do you say to you, look yourself in the mirror and say, well, that game plan's not working. Maybe we have to parlay one of our arms into somebody really good. When it stops working, Okay, I would agree with you. We can't say yet. Okay, could be at the end of this year okay. if, you, if you if you really stumbled. But okay. but I think you know right now it's it's been working. Three interviews or maybe two on Mitch Unfiltered <laughs> episode two hundred and forty three, and then Graz and I will come back with a lot of random stories, some interesting ones from the world of sports and non sports. Plus, I got to stump the band for uh, for Dave Grosby in the other stuff oh, segment man. on episode two forty three. Hey, look who it is. It's Lindsay Schwartz of Daniel's Broiler. Lindsay, are the restaurants still thriving with you on the golf course three or four days a week? Hey, Mitch, good good to talk to you. Yeah, I wish I was on three or four days a week. Come but, on uh, now. But I, yeah, I can't complain. Come I, on, on now. I, you're telling I'm, me you're not on the golf course three or four days a week? I'm on maybe like one or two days a no, week. No, you're but, not. <laughs> Sometimes three or four. All right. I always focus our attention on some obvious qualities of Daniel's like the steaks and seafood, the incredible ambiance and service. But here's something we never talk about or don't talk about enough, desserts. Now, can we talk about desserts and make people in our audience want to go to Daniel's just for the desserts? 
I think so. I mean, we, you're right. We haven't talked about it much. I'll tell you what, I'm a big dessert guy, so I would love to talk about okay. desserts. I'm not a big dessert guy. I'm not a big drinker, but I want to hear you talk about the desserts at Daniel's. Tell me, please. I'm a dessert guy and a drinker, but, but <laughs> let's, let's talk about, let's just talk about desserts. I'll tell you what, you know, we've been around a long time since 1980. We got a handful of desserts that have been around since day one that are just old school, old time favorites. And they're so good that we we never change them. The, we've got a New York style cheesecake, which I think you have to have if you're a steakhouse. We have a creme brulee, which is awesome. Again, you have to have it. The other one that we've had forever is the coconut fudge sundae. I may have talked about it a little bit, but it is so good. I mean, it, and we do it differently. It's a, it's almost like an upside down sundae. So we line the bowl with fudge and refrigerate that. So you got this thick layer of fudge on the bottom. And then we put the delicious uh, coconut ice cream on top of that. And I mean, people have loved that for over 40 years. It's awesome. Do you have an ambulance sitting outside to take me directly to the <laughs> hospital after I have that dessert? <laughs> we should. I don't know. We, we know where all the closest uh, hospitals are to each uh, restaurant. So, so you don't have to worry about that. But but then, you know, we also have some, some of the newer ones. We've got a chocolate decadence cake that is relatively new. It is what it is. It's a decadent chocolate cake served with vanilla ice cream. A newer one is a peach melba butter cake. So butter cake is something that we've seen at other steakhouses around the country. And then I got to mention also just, uh, it sounds simple, but just the ice cream. We, we use Olympic Mountain ice cream, which is a company, family-owned company that's been around as long as we have. And uh, you really just see their stuff in restaurants. You don't see it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And they come up with these amazing, unique flavors. They kind of pick the flavor and, and we serve it. But like, for example, there's a brown butter almond toffee, which is killer. Strawberry rhubarb pie, white chocolate espresso flake with caramel swirl. Jeez. I could keep going. It's wow. uh, it, it's it's been a staple for us and, and a great partnership for us, and we just love it. My God, I ask you about your steaks, your seafood, your ambiance, and you give me eight seconds. I didn't know I need to be asking you about dessert all these years. I told you I've known you twenty years. You know you, just, you can't figure out the right questions. I'm a dessert guy. Let's go. Daniel's Broiler, world class steakhouses. Unfiltered. You have to have some sort of target, at least 50 pounds off in 100 days. That was my target. There's got to be a plan. So my plan was I'm going to go ahead and eat three meals a day, but I'm going to cut each of those meals in half and seek the heat before I eat, meaning wait for that burn in my stomach before I added new food. Four months ago, you might recall a Mitch Unfiltered visit by Kevin McGinnis from Nashville, Tennessee. The 57-year-old who told us that he was going to eat nothing but McDonald's for 100 straight days, just closely watch his portions to see how much weight he would lose. He's back. The 100-day challenge, I believe, is complete. Is that correct, Kevin? Yep, we're 12 days past it. Ah, all chronicled on TikTok, which I don't know anything about. Lay the results on us. 60, well, 59 and a half pounds down after 100 days of eating nothing but McDonald's. And every way you can measure someone's health dramatically better. Mm. Every way. 
So triglycerides down over 200 points, cholesterol down over 65 points, my energy, my sleep, my fit, every, the only thing, because I did no workouts, no vitamins, no supplements. Now I'm having to add some fitness back in, but as far as a measurement of health, dramatically better in every way. How about sodium intake? A lot of people worry about that when it comes to McDonald's. It had to be enormous. You wouldn't argue that. How about, uh, blood pressure and the things that come about from a lot of salt. You would think so, except for the fact that I was cutting everything in half. So even though I was eating French fries every day, like 95 out of the hundred days, I had French <laughs> fries twice a day. There was times I actually added extra salt to them, did little salt bay thing and added extra sodium because I was only eating half. And when I'm only eating half, my body's processing everything I put in it. So my blood pressure, 108 over 70. I got the blood pressure of a teenager after 100 days of eating nothing but McDonald's. So you've obviously been to your doctor since the 100 days are up. If I chatted with him next, if after you got off the Zoom, I had him on the Zoom, <laughs> would he put up his nose at all about anything? They were not excited when I told them that this is what I was planning on doing. They are <laughs> very excited about the results. Really? Completely blown away that, of course, in hindsight, everyone's like, Oh, well, yeah, calories in, calories out. So, of course, it worked. Yeah, tell that to the a third of the people and a third of the doctors I talked to that were like, this is crazy. How dare you? You're leading people astray. We want to take you off TikTok. We want to take you out completely. About a third of the people that were adamant against this, about a third of the people early on were, yeah, calories in, calories out. It's going to work. They didn't ever say anything good about the health. They said, yeah, you'll lose the weight, but it's going to hurt your health. All of them were shocked to see the health improvements as well. But it turns out obesity is more dangerous than a French fry. So you did text me along the way a couple times. Did you not tell me that TikTok tried to shut you? Somebody tried to shut you down or did shut you down for a, a brief period? Yeah, no, I was actually taken off. They they banned me and they didn't give a reason. They just said community guidelines. So I went on to the community guidelines and the only thing I could find that would be a reason for it was they do not condone any kind of unhealthy challenges like go eat dirt for 30 days, right? Or something like that. So I sent a message back where I detailed everything I was doing. Number one, I never challenged anyone to do this with me. It was never a challenge. It was, this is me documenting what I'm doing. Number two, I was telling people that I was cutting three meals a day into smaller portions. You can have it if you have it. There's no dietitian on the planet that would say if you're obese, that cutting your portions would be a bad thing. And number three, McDonald's serves 69 million people a day. You can't tell me that their food is absolutely unhealthy. Otherwise, they wouldn't be serving 69 million people a day. So your theory is Americans are, for the most part, overweight. Not because of what we eat, but because of how much we eat. That was the premise I wanted to find out if that was true for me and my body and maybe a few other people along the way. And all of a sudden, just hundreds of people were following along saying, hey, I'm cutting my meals in half and I've lost weight. Hey, I'm, I'm eating nothing but Chick-fil-A and I've lost you know 30 pounds. I'm eating nothing but fast food now because of you and I've lost 25 pounds. So all these people not only losing weight, but their health getting drunk. So obesity, getting rid of the killer of obesity first. And then is it okay to add the micronutrients and macronutrients for brain health? Should you eat yeah. an avocado once in a while? Absolutely. But if I'm dead, 
it doesn't matter if I put the micronutrient in after that. I've got to get rid of the obesity first right. so I can have the longevity so I can add the other things in, do the workouts, do the fitness stuff that I'm doing now. And how much weight did you lose again? Tell me. 59 and a half pounds. Imagine a 50 pound sack of dog food on your shoulder carrying around with you every day. You went, 100 days later, that is gone. You went from what weight to what weight? Yeah, so 238 pounds down to 178 and a half pounds. And how tall are you? Five, nine and a half. And did you notice that the weight came off early in the 100 days, late in the 100 days, or was it kind of consistent throughout? No, it was actually a lot early. So there's a lot of water weight, I'm sure, that was part of that early phase. And everyone's like, you can't lose a pound a day. That's impossible. Of course it's possible. When you have, a, when you have as much obesity as I had, cutting the portions down and not drinking the calories, not snacking and eating calories between meals. I mean, just all of those things. Yeah. There was a, a surge of weight loss that came off. And I figured it would average about a half a pound a day by the time it was all done. It was a little bit more than that by the time it was all said and done. Definitely trimmed off as it tapered as we got closer and closer to the now. Now I'm down 60 pounds or 61 pounds as of this morning. So let's go back to the snacks and drinks because that's a part of it. The drinks in particular, you did away with sodas, diet sodas, whatever it was you were drinking. Water, water, water. For 100 days, you had no beverage. Is that correct? Maybe coffee? Did you have coffee? Number one, no calorie. I didn't have a single calorie outside of McDonald's, not even a breath mint for the 100 days. Everything, 100% of every calorie I consumed, even though I wasn't counting calories, right. I was just cutting three meals a day in half. But obviously, if you're cutting the plates in half, you're reducing the total calories you're taking. And if I'm cutting the meals in half and the scale is going down and my health is going up, what else do I need to measure? But to your answer your question, yeah, there was water predominant. I, may, I think I maybe had four diet sodas the entire time. Everything else was water. That was quite frankly, the hardest part of it yeah. was the water got boring. Yeah. So I added in some stir mix in stir is just a zero calorie um, fruit based flavoring that um, has, you know, a stevia based and it was, it actually made the water more palatable. How much water were yeah, you drinking? No, about 80 to 90 ounces. So half your body weight in ounces of water is a good rule of thumb for anybody. Wow. And uh, I probably averaged about that. I didn't, again, I didn't measure everything. I just made sure that of my, you know, the drink cup that I have, that's about 32 ounces. I had about three of those plus a bottle of water with each of the meals. And that was, that just maintained my hydration. So Kevin, I kind of close my eyes as I listen to you and visualize myself doing this. And I, I can tell you, and everybody's a little different. What I would have a problem with is if I'm not having any healthy snack, nuts, almonds, or something in between meals, and I'm only eating half of these meals each time, I'd be so hungry when I came to mealtime that I think half of a McDonald's meal would not be satisfying to enough that I would still be hungry when I walked out of the restaurant. That would be my problem. Change the words to, I would not feel full. I would not feel full. Correct. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. I never want to feel full again ever in my life. And here's why. Um, one of the people early on that was following this journey said, not hungry should feel like not thirsty. Think about when we're thirsty. We don't drink until we're full of water. We drink until we're just, it's not thirsty feels like nothing. Mm -hmm. Not hungry is supposed to feel like nothing. Meaning if we ever feel full, we've already missed it. We've gone past satiated. And if you pour too much gas in a gas tank, it spills out on the ground. If we pour too much fuel in our body, it spills out on our hips and our belly. So that feeling of full that I used to go for, it's so funny. So many people be like, but if you ate less calorie dense foods, you could eat more of it and feel fuller. 
I never want to feel full ever again. Satiated, not stuffed is one. I even put it on the poker chip that I sent out to people Mm -hmm. satiated, not stuffed. So what's that mean? After about 15 minutes of a meal, you'll notice your stomach isn't hungry. Your head is still hungry. Your head still wants to finish the rest of the meal. So for the first week, you have to wrap up the other half, get it out of sight, out of mind, because if you're looking at it, you're going to eat it out of sight, out of mind. And then notice, is my stomach still growling? Do I still have that heat or that burn in my stomach? And the answer is after 15 minutes, it hits your bloodstream and you won't. It turns off that signal to your brain, but only if we haven't been snacking. If we're snacking in between meals, we'll never feel that heat. I call seek the heat before you eat. You'll never feel that because you're always having some sort of food in your stomach that's processing. You've got to empty your stomach and start pulling from the fat reserves for you to even feel that you're actually hungry. Most Americans probably don't even know what actual hunger feels like because we're so busy grazing. And it's so crazy because that little handful of nuts, like you're grabbing some pistachios, grabbing some cashews, you can be eating healthy foods along the way. But each of those handfuls, another 100, another 200 calories as you're going along, pretty soon you've had another meal in between your meals. Now, we talked the last time and we giggled about your wife's reaction to all of this. You told me at the beginning, every once in a while when you'd go, she'd ask you to grab her something, but but she wasn't on it with you. But that changed along the way. What happened? Well, number one, I never encouraged her. I never said, hey, honey, you should do this with me. Because remember, my goal is longevity. I want to live longer. (laughs) If I would have told her, hey, honey, you need to do this, I would have woke up with a pillow over my face and never woken up again, right? Luckily, (laughs) she saw the example and she's like, you know what? At about about day 40, she says, I want to do this with you. And I was just as shocked as anybody to hear that. I mean, I I literally was not encouraging it, nor did I encourage anyone else to do it. I was just showing, documenting my journey, right? So sure enough, she started doing it. And over the last 60 days of that journey for my 100 days, she lost 18 pounds. Good for her. What was the, the typical meal? I think I asked you this the last time. The typical McDonald's meal, let's say lunch, and of course, dinner would have then been the remaining half that you didn't eat unless it was breakfast to lunch. I literally would order a Big Mac meal or a a double quarter pounder with cheese meal. I'd I'd get a numbered meal or I'd make up an equivalent of a numbered meal, a burger, a fries, an apple pie, cut each of those in half, eat half of it now, wrap up the other half for later, and then reheat that later. And that would be the next meal. And then I'd go back to the restaurant again, get another meal. And that would be half for that meal and half the next day. So Mm. every other day, it was one trip one day, two trips the next day, but it was literally ordering any numbered meal, eat half of it, save half for later. Now half a hot fudge Sunday wouldn't save. So I'd toss the other half of that. But one of the concerns people had is you're wasting a half a meal every time. I didn't waste anything. Almost all the meals, I ate the other half the next meal. Got it. Only occasionally, like with a hot fudge Sunday or something, I'd eat half and the other half would get tossed. How many different McDonald's would you say you visited over the 100 days? <laughs> they definitely got to know me at certain McDonald's. I definitely <laughs> frequented some that are closer to my house more than others. The owners of the local McDonald's were so amazing. They're like, hey, if you want to come do a video shoot with the news crew, whatever, they were yeah. absolutely all open to it. And um, there was a grand opening I was invited to, a reopening of one of the restaurants. And I got to go spend some time. Actually, Ronald McDonald was there. The the official Ronald was there. So I got my picture with Ronald. And yeah, we got to have a conversation. And it was just amazing. Um, so I, I know I've met a bunch of amazing restaurant owners and amazing crews that work at those restaurants. But you never heard from McDonald's officially, corporate McDonald's, or you did? 
Well, I reached out to him multiple times and I finally, like on day 95, <laughs> got to have a conversation and they're like, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. We, we're, we're here. We're cheering for your success. And they sent me a gift basket that had a couple of shirts and a hat. So I could I could probably sneak into McDonald's and look like I work there now. So I'm good. What do you explain or how do you explain the hesitance from them? There's clearly they clearly knew about you from the beginning. They were hesitant to get involved on an official level or reach out to you. I'm curious to what you think the reasons for that are. Well, I think they're an intelligent company. They're, they're getting free advertising. Why, why rock the boat? Number one, B, it could have been a train wreck, right? What if my triglycerides went through the roof? What if my cholesterol went through the roof? Yeah. So backing it without seeing the results and who knew if I was legitimate or not, you know, what, yeah. what kind of skeletons do, do I have my, my closet, which luckily I don't have any of those skeletons. I know there's some other spokespeople who have uh, not done well for certain brands. Um, so they, you know, they just obviously caution on their part for any of that. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, the, the question that I asked was, can I get healthy eating McDonald's? And I thought I could, and a lot of people thought I couldn't. And I proved that it absolutely has nothing to do with what we're eating. It has to do with the quantity that we're eating for losing obesity. Again, for getting rid of obesity, eat what you like, because if you're eating what you like, it's never diet, 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 binge. You get to have anything you like, just not all of it right now. If now that I'm not eating just exclusive, I still eat McDonald's, just not exclusively now. But if I want to eat brownies, you don't get to eat that whole pan of brownies. Eat a brownie, save rest for later, right? Delayed gratification, not denying yourself. First non-McDonald's meal once it ended. It was actually the next day. The whole plan was filet mignon. I wanted to have a Big Mac that day. So the next day I did have a Big Mac on day 101 just to prove to everyone that I wasn't sick of it. But filet mignon was the uh, first official non-McDonald's meal. And it was it was a bone-in filet mignon at the Standard here in Nashville. And it was incredible. And now what for Kevin McGinnis? Round one, 100 days, was eliminate obesity. Round two is increase the beast in me. So if you watch now, I've got the workouts going on. I'm going to do a hundred foot rope climb 100 days after eating nothing but McDonald's for a hundred days. You be the judge, Mitch Unfiltered listeners. Kevin McGinnis in Nashville back at it after a hundred days of eating nothing but McDonald's back with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you, Kevin. All the best to you. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mitch. Appreciate you. Hey, let's check in with the president of Zeke's Pizza, Mr. Dan Black. Hiya, Dan. How's everything going over there? Doing good, Mitch. How are the eastern spots, the two spots that are furthest away from headquarters, Spokane and Boise, doing? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. We didn't quite know how difficult that was going to be and how much the brand would be known and stuff. And it's been great. The new location on the outskirts of Boise and Eagle is just going crazy. And we were happy that, you know, there's a lot of people that knew about Zeke's down there and you know, there's a lot of people that don't still, and, and we're working on that, but the location's been busy. It's got a great patio. So as summer kicks in there, it's getting even more amped up. Same thing in Spokane. They have a great patio. It got really popular for Gonzaga basketball games in mm-hmm. particular and your favorite basketball <laughs> coach on earth. Um, but yeah, no, so no, we're, we've been, we've been really happy with the two locations that are, you know, really outside of our core. So, so far, so good. I need a summertime beer selection. I understand you've got two new collaborations in your vast library at Zeke's. Yeah, no, we've got two awesome ones this summer. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, what we call collabs a lot, which is just a fancy term for saying that we have relationships with most of the great breweries in the Northwest and 
they often brew beers that are exclusive to us and we call those collabs. And so when we say collab, it just means that it's a beer that really you can only get at Zeke's and a brewery. One's already going, it's called the Reach Pilsner and it's got a good backstory. I think I've mentioned that Tom and Doug founded Zeke's because they didn't like working for Arthur Anderson and writing code. And of course they knew that the internet and computers would never be big anyway. So they started, <laughs> started a pizza company. But, you know, part of the reason they started their own business so they could windsurf at the gorge and the reach actually refers to a stretch of the Columbia where they windsurf. And our partner on that is a brewery called Ferment. The head brewer down there is really great at Pilsners and we like Pilsners because they're easy drinking. They're low alcohol. Even you could handle a couple of those. And so, uh, so the reach Pilsners going right now, it's an easy drinking summer beer. And then we're doing a re-rack of the one we did with Fremont Brewing last summer. So in July, we'll have another version of the Z-Side IPA, which will definitely be too aggressive for you, Mitch. So stay away from that one. <laughs> so yeah, we got the Pilsner going right now, the Reach Pilsner, and then we got Z-Side coming up in July and they're both really good. It's quite a selection of beer at Zeke's Pizza. You know Zeke's Pizza for, for their great Northwest style crust and pizza, but boy, what a beer selection that continues to grow and grow. We love Zeke's Pizza an incredible partner of Mitch Unfiltered, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. And now the stage is clear for Wendy Clark. Who takes down all the stars in Los Angeles to win the United States Open. Well, our national championship, the U.S. Open, is a wrap from Los Angeles. And I'm wondering what longtime golf scribe John Hawkins, the Hawk, thought of the proceedings. How are you, partner? I'm doing great, Mitch. How are you? I'm okay. Listen, I have been privileged to play Los Angeles Country Club three, four, five times. And I thought when I heard years ago that it was going to be the host of the U.S. Open, I thought, this is magic. This is going to be a perfect match made in heaven. And now it's happened and all the players are complaining about the track. Hawk, the ambiance was lacking. What'd you think of LACC? I thought it was a pretty good U.S. Open. It lacked dramatics at the end, but Wyndham Clark held on to his lead. Uh, nobody could catch him. McElroy couldn't make a putt. Fowler floundered. And uh, God, Scotty Scheffler, I mean, back-to-back three putts early on the back nine. That was all she wrote. But I had a feeling the ambiance would be lacking at this tournament. I think historically Los Angeles has not taken well to attending golf tournaments in person. I thought there was an energy that lacked throughout, but there's going to be a huge corporate presence at this tournament. And whenever you hear those two words, Mitch, you, you, you kind of cringe because that means we won't have the same type of energy. Look, all those bottle buoys, they suck, but at least people are into it, right? Um, it lacked a certain something. As for the players complaining, that only seems to me to validate the, the choice. Uh, it, it was a different type of U.S. venue than almost any other. To me, it looked a bit like Beth Page. Mitch, one guy wins, 155 don't, mm -hmm. okay? At the U.S. Open with a bunch of type A bunch of alpha males out there battling over one of the most prestigious tournaments of the year. It's not all that uncommon to get a lot of negative feedback about the golf course. It was fine. 
you're never going to have a perfect major championship, yeah. especially at the U.S. Open. So let's talk about our champion, Hawk. It's not a name that non-golf fans would recognize. Wyndham Clark, he's won once before in Charlotte. Is this a, a Lucas Glover, Gary Woodland, Webb Simpson, Jeff Ogilvie, or is this a guy that's on the rise that we're going to see on leaderboards of majors in the future? Very good question, and one I'm not sure I have the answer for. I, I, I would have to contemplate further. I, there's a lack of competitive self-esteem Clark seems to have that he overcame this week, uh, and Dan Hicks mentioned this a couple of times during the telecast. Clark wanted, went into the final round wanting to play cocky. To me, that means he wants to take some chances, and uh, to me, that also means that maybe he's not totally comfortable with the top spot after 54 holes. He's immensely talented. He drives the ball two miles. He's as long as McElroy. He hits his irons as well as anybody in the game, especially now. He had struggled with his iron play in the past, but he's he has made tremendous strides in his iron play this year as evidenced by the PGA Tour statistics. And don't win uh, at Quail Hollow, which hosts the uh, Wells Fargo, the elevated event in North Carolina. You don't win there unless you're really good, unless you're really talented. Mm -hmm. Does he have the mental makeup? Is he one of those alpha males? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any reason to think he'll be all that different from an Ogilvy, but he's a big kid. He looks a lot bigger than six foot 170, doesn't he? I mean, he looks like a raw-boned country boy who can rip it. And mm -hmm. if he puts as well as he did, uh, this week, even half the time, he's going to win again this year, and that would be three. And from there, you'd have to think that he will become a, a, a fixture, at least in the top 20 in the world ranking. Is he going to win another major? That's really, really hard to say. Right. Um, he certainly played well enough to win this week, but I also, in final analysis, this was a tournament that was lost more than it was won to me. I think that McElroy had so many chances. It looked almost identical to the British Open last year when McElroy could not buy a putt and lost by one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what am I supposed to think? I'm a journalist. I'm not a cheerleader. Wyndham Clark played very, very well, and he wins, uh, mm -hmm. but this was another very difficult defeat in McElroy's uh, growing portfolio of such losses. I want to talk more about McElroy Hawk, but before I do, that 14th hole, the par five on the backside, you had McElroy with a wedge in his hand for his third come up short and, and tripped to a bogey on that hole, while the eventual champion from like, I don't know, 250, 260, 270, hit a three-wood, a laser, into the middle of the green and two putted for birdie. There you go. Right. There you go. One shot difference. One guy can't make par with a wedge in his hand and the other guy's making birdie with that fairway wood shot. It almost feels like McElroy is seeing how hard he can make it on himself and still win. Yeah. He repeatedly missed golden opportunities from the fairway with short irons into these greens where you really had to hit it inside 15 feet uh, to, to give yourself a better chance of making it than not making it. Uh, McElroy, his putting flaws weren't as obvious as Scheffler's. Yeah. But Scheffler's clearly going through a, a tough stretch here with the putter. He, I mean, he three-putted from, what, 12 feet in back-to-back -back holes, as I mentioned earlier. And But 
but but McElroy couldn't get one to go. And I remember seeing this back in 2010 at the PGA Championship at Whistling Straits when he's still a young lad. When McElroy's going well, he drives it a mile, he hits it close, and he taps it in almost as an afterthought. That was not the case this week. I still think he's a guy who's putting too much pressure on himself. He looked better this week in terms of just the body language and the focus, Mm -hmm. but Again, we saw the same type of result. I know it's not your role to cheer, but had Ricky <laughs> had Ricky Fowler Hawk been able to close the deal on Sunday at LACC and risen from the ashes for his first major title, how popular of a win would that have been? Oh, it would have been would have been gigantic. I mean, it was almost too good a feel good to last. He struggled. He struggled in the final round. I believe he shot three over. I might be a shot or two. I'm not too off, but you know, he just couldn't get anything going in this case. I think, uh, I I think it's pretty easy to figure that his lack of in the hunt presence, he hasn't been in the kitchen in a long time, Mitch. So he hasn't felt the heat and as well as he, deports himself as, as as composed as he looks he just he did not do this the, the things that he mm-hmm. had been doing over the first 54 holes he missed a couple of short putts early and that seemed to throw him off stride he been progressing gradually uh, over the last six months but Mitch he still hasn't won a tournament no, and long time that was always that was always Ricky's problem he didn't win enough to justify yeah there's been times when he's had more commercials running on TV than he has wins on the PGA Tour, and that's probably not a good a good quotient. But, um, you know, he's back, and I'm sure he takes away a lot of positives from, from LACC. I want to go back to your comments about Scotty Scheffler and his putting, especially his short putting hawk. I mean, the guy, yeah. the guy is the best ball striker by a mile, if he puts just mediocre, he wins by five or seven just about every time he tees it up. That's how good he is from tee to green. At what point, you know, he's changing putters or he's looking at new putters. At what point do we start talking about Tom Watson back 30 years ago or 25 years ago when he got the you-know-what from uh, from five or seven feet? At what point do we start having that conversation with Scheffler? Well, you know, I think it's already started. Uh, you know, any objective observer would have a hard time rationalizing Scheffler's inability to, to convert scoring opportunities. I still call me crazy, but I think it go, goes back to that those two little misses he had when he was up by a bunch at the Masters last year. Mm-hmm. He he missed a, a two footer, and it seemed to shock him. And it continued into this year. I mean, it doesn't happen very often because you don't get. Nobody, even Scheffler, doesn't get himself into a position every week. But recently, at the match play, he had a chance to close out, I believe it was Sam Burns, and he missed a a three-footer. He spent way too much time analyzing the putt. He fell out of his rhythm, and he missed it. Mm -hmm. He lost that match. Short putts, when you start missing them, it becomes like a virus. You know, there's not a whole lot you can do until it leaves your system. And the only way it's going to leave your system is if you start making them and making them in big situations. I can remember times in the mid 2000s when Nicholson missed a bushel of short putts that were really important. And uh, Scheffler's going through the same thing. He'll be back. He's, he's too good, but you know, maybe he needs to go see a shrink or a hypnotist or I don't know. Um, 
change putters again, but what he was doing this weekend at LACC was not working. Hawk, before we finish up, I haven't talked to you on uh, on the show about the merger, the Live PGA merger. We had Jay Monahan taking a leave of absence because of medical issues. I, I for one, think that the Tiger silence is deafening. I can't believe that we haven't heard a, a word, at least I, that I know of. I don't even think we've seen a tweet from uh, from Tiger Woods about the merger between the PGA Tour and Liv. Where are you on all this? Well, I don't like it. Uh, there's way too many loose ends. There's a, a, a question regarding the, the motives involved here. And, and that doesn't even broach the topic of Monaghan's jumping up and down and, and basically defaming Live Golf for 18 months and then hopping into bed with them. These are all things that a commissioner can't do, in my opinion. A commissioner has to be even-headed, level-headed, and, uh, and, and choose his words carefully. And I think this whole thing got off to a bad start when he walked into the player meeting uh, in the spring of 22 and threatened everybody with expulsion if they left. Now we're looking at a bunch of $20 million elevated events, and the PGA Tour has financial problems. Okay, that's not the direction that anybody anticipated. It's certainly not the direction that would be expected of a, of a confident and competent commissioner in a sport that basically has to, it's a mighty empire, Mitch. It, it, it can't run its in, itself into the ground unless you encourage it. And I think there's going to be a long and, and bumpy road ahead between, you know, the Saudis aren't getting in this and they're not going to dump a billion dollars or whatever it is into the a product when they don't have any presence in it. They're going to continue playing their schedule. I, I really, I think that's their intention. I don't know. You know, the PGA tour is saying one thing. I know you had my colleague, Bob Harrigan last week, right. the PGA tour is saying one thing and uh, live golf is saying another, and they're very different and both are, acting as though the other will take a dramatically reduced role in the day-to-day functions of professional golf. And I'm just not sure that Liv's going to back down very easily. They didn't get into this to have their product abolished. It doesn't make any sense. Tiger must be pissed, and I don't know when the next time we're going to hear from him. Maybe not even until the father and son thing, if he even plays in that. Well, I, you know, Tiger's probably being smarter than all of us in, in holding back on his uh, viewpoints on it, using this as a, as a, you know, he's conspicuous in his absence of voice, but also as a fan would, would tend to believe that his lack of support for the tour and or Monaghan, the silence in itself is deafening mm-hmm. in that he doesn't approve of how this thing was handled. Mm-hmm. And Tiger has been Tiger's been in the spotlight for so long. He just instinctively knows how to handle certain situations. He's an expert at talking without saying anything, and these are all admirable qualities by a mega superstar. And he's that, and he'll always be that. And I think he's probably doing the wise thing by buttoning his lip for now. Catch John Hawkins, the morning read via Sports Illustrated. Are you going to give a thumbs up, a thumb sideways, or a thumbs down to NBC's coverage? I thought NBC. I thought NBC did a nice job. In fact, I'm I'm right. You know, I, it's a tournament full of mistakes, right? I mean, and they're willing to address those mistakes, those strategical risks that don't work out, the bogeys. I thought they did a pretty good job. I I can't imagine CBS 
handling this particular tournament and Fox sure as hell didn't do a very good job. So we're left with NBC and we're all the better for it. Listen, I'm appreciative. Thanks for staying up late with me and being on Mitch Unfiltered after the U.S. Open. Thanks again, partner. Appreciate it very much. You got it, Mitch. Take care. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner, John Waterstrat joined us, and there's good reason. He's been busy. An exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy, and we're excited to unveil some new cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along, and he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms, and we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before, and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area. Wow. The fantastic flagship Bellevue location was already beautiful, so I can't wait to drop by and see it. So what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up, some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install. Yes, our commercial department's doing a fantastic job. And as we've talked about before, we can do almost anything in fireplaces and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger. And we're hoping to uh, unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in North America. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. How big? Roughly 25 feet. And you're not going to tell us where it is, but we'll be able to see it sometime? And we'll be able to see it and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Oh, that's yeah. going to be fun. So now that we've reached, let's call it the off season for fireplace use, it's actually you and I talk about this, one of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home or like you guys did for us, an outdoor unit. Yes. I mean, when the weather gets nice out there, things go a little bit faster. So we're not fighting the weather, whether we have to extract a fireplace, put a new one in. And then again, outside as well, when you're out there, we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now. And so when you're looking at the off season and you have a schedule and, and you want to get something done quickly, it's the best time to do it. Yeah. Whether it's fireplaces or garage doors, begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com. I'll bet you'll end your search there too. It's sponsors like John and Fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible. Fireside Home Solutions and firesidehomesolutions.com. Unfiltered. You know, a lot of people try to say yogiism. I don't even know I say it myself. I really don't. The best one I think too is that when you come to the fork and road, take it. And we have. I go at Edgemont Road and Montclair. If you go to the fork, you go on Highland Avenue where I live. Either one take you on Highland Avenue. <laughs> That's how I got that. He was an 18-time Major League Baseball All-Star. He won, count them, 10 World Series rings, making him the greatest winner of them all. He won the AL MVP on three different occasions. And yet, while in the Hall of Fame, always passed over as one of the all-time greats in that conversation. Why? That's the question that's explored in the new documentary, It Ain't Over, the life and legacy of Yogi Berra. And here's his granddaughter, executive producer of the film, Lindsay Berra. How are you, Lindsay? Hey, Mitch. How's it going? How are you? Tell us about the uh, the relationship between you and your grandfather, the, the guy that all of us love from afar for so many years. 
I always say that my grandpa Yogi to me was my relationship with him was just like everybody else's relationship with their grandpa. I mean, my my fondest memories of him from when I was a little kid are making meatballs uh, before Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, we used to get the traditional Italian meatball mix, the pork and the veal and the beef, and we would roll like 200 mini meatballs, like the size of a golf ball. And grandpa would let the grandkids help him roll all the meatballs. And my grandmother would put them in a <laughs> pot and we would eat them with toothpaste the next day um so like it was a big like privilege if you were one of the grandkids picked to come over and roll the meatballs with grandpa but we used to play wiffle ball in the yard and and i watched boxing matches with them we did a lot of sports related things but i didn't you know by the time i was old enough to realize that my grandpa yogi was also that other guy yogi yeah. berra yeah. already been grandpa yeah. yogi for so long that it was kind of hard for me to rationalize it in my mind and even now i'm a grown-up i know Grandpa Yogi was Yogi Berra, but my memories with the meatballs are Grandpa Yogi. When we talk about the guy with the World Series ring for each hand, that's or for each finger, that's that's Yogi Berra. He's kind of they don't always meet and shake hands in my mind. So when you when you were of the age to realize that we all loved your your grandfather, maybe for different reasons, did you like look at that from a from a standpoint of, oh my God, they look at him a lot differently than those of us who love and know him? And see him all well, the time. I mean, it's actually funny. I don't think people look at him differently. I really? think Grandpa had this super relatable quality about him. You know, he was a first generation Italian immigrant. And there's so many of, of us in this country who can relate to either being the children or grandchildren of immigrants or immigrants ourselves. He was a veteran. So many of us know, are, or respect veterans. He had this beautiful 65-year marriage with my Grammy Carmen. So many people can relate to that. He was a great father and a great grandfather. So many people relate to, to having kids and grandchildren. There were so many things that so endeared him to so many people that when I even today meet, meet folks, they tell me I loved your grandfather and I really think they mean it in the same sense of the word wow. as I mean it when I say I loved my grandfather. And it is no matter how often it happens, it is astonishing and humbling and the the breadth of his reach and the amount of people he touched will never cease to amaze me. So touching Lawrence Peter Barra. How do you get the nickname Yogi, Lindsay? Such a bad story. I hate telling it. No, all, you don't want to tell it. No, no, I'm going to tell it. It's, it's just so anticlimactic. Oh. Everyone wants something like oh. boom. Oh. Well, make something all, up. His real, name, his real name is Lorenzo Pietro. And when he was a kid, his mother couldn't say Larry. So she actually called him Laudie. L-A-U-D-I-E is kind of how they spelled it. Yeah. But when he was playing Legion ball as a kid, he used to sit on the ground, like in the on deck circle with his arms and legs crossed. Yeah. And one of the kids he played with had seen a movie the night before. We think it was Gunga Din, which, which won the Oscar. And in that movie, folks were doing yoga. And he said to Grandpa, you look like one of those yogis. And it stuck. Lindsay, I'm, I'm a guy out here who gave a lot of nicknames names to co-workers <laughs> I'm kind of known for all the nicknames I gave out over the years and most of the people that I gave nicknames to hated them right away 
and then kind of gravitated towards them and used them for years and years and years. Did he like Yogi right away? Do you know the answer to that question? I don't know if he liked it right away, but it really took off. I yeah. mean, even my grandmother, his wife, she called him Larry at the beginning. Oh. But once my my father was, I mean, they met uh, in 1940, early in 48. They were married in 49. My dad was born the end of 49. So when my there was only like, it was under two years that she called him Larry. Because when my dad was born, he was Larry. And she thought it was easier to differentiate between him and grandpa if she called grandpa Yogi. So he was Yogi. Even Joe Graziola, who knew him growing up, um, called him called him Yogi as well. So he definitely grew into it. And that was who he was. Joe Graziola, who lived in the same neighborhood, right? Directly across the street, 54, 47 and 54. And there were three 47. guys, right? Who, yeah. who was the other one that lived in the same neighborhood? Uh, Jack Buck down the street. Jack and Buck. and if you want to even go further, there were five guys from the hill in St. Louis who made the 1950. World Cup soccer team that beat England for the first time. Wow. So they, they, they were not slouches athletically. Wow. The wow, Lindsay. Was it important that this documentary be made important? Or is it just a lovely story of an incredible, likable man who made everyone around him better and smile? I think it's both of those things. It, I, it was certainly important to me. I keep telling this story last year, right before we premiered the documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival, Yadier Molina uh, got his thousandth RBI, right? And I love Yadier Molina. I wrote a cover story on him when I was at ESPN Magazine. Grandpa loved him because he was a St. Louis Cardinal. Grandpa was a Cardinals fan his whole life. Yeah. So I click on the story to read about the circumstances of Yadier's thousandth RBI and up comes this composite image with the headline, Yadier joins elite company. And it's Yachty, Pudge Rodriguez, and uh, Johnny Ben, who all have a thousand RBIs, but Grandpa Yogi has one thousand four hundred and thirty, which is the record that will never, no way, mm. no how, ever be broken by a catcher. And he literally wasn't in the picture. So the idea for me is to figuratively put him back in the picture as the greatest catcher of all time and one of the greatest MLB players of all time. But after you realize that as good as he was on the baseball field, he was a better human being. So it is all the things you said. It's a lovely story about a man who always did the right thing and lived his life in such an exemplary fashion that it's a great thing for anyone to see and be inspired. By. And I know the movie is already out. It's out everywhere, including here in the Seattle area. I've only seen the trailer so far, Lindsay, but in the trailer, you talk about a very poignant, similar moment in the 2015 All-Star Game. Tell us. Uh, yeah, so prior to the 2015 All-Star Game, there was a fan vote uh, orchestrated by Major League Baseball. 25 million fans voted on the greatest living baseball players, and they brought out Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Willie Mays, and Sandy Koufax, who are all amazing, but I was watching the game sitting next to my very much alive Grandpa Yogi, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, he's got more World Series than any of these guys. What the heck? Now, I don't think he should have replaced any of them at all. I think Willie Mays is the greatest player to ever play the game, but he should have been out on the field with them. It should have been the five greatest living players. Did it bother him? I don't think grandpa let to bother me more than him. Like he, he was grandpa was uh, so accustomed his whole life to hearing that he was too small, too short, too, too thick. He looked like a fire hydrant. He looked like a gargoyle. He was too ugly to be a Yankee. I don't even know what that one means. Um, so he was always really able to let that kind of stuff kind of roll off his back. Um, but it, it bugged me. And it, and especially as, you know, we get further and further away 
from the time that grandpa played, you know, he played his last game in May of 1965. So if we want people to remember how good he is, we're going to have to remind him. And the documentary does that. So it didn't bother him on that night, but overall the documentary is, is a very, uh, I wouldn't say simple story, but it's the story of how somebody's off the field persona can completely overshadow some amazing accomplishments between the lines over the years it never bothered him i mean i don't know that i ever talked to him about it bothering him he certainly he had this huge outsized personality and again he spent 50 years after his playing career managing being quoting in the press being quoted by presidents saying his yogiisms doing commercials that really leaned into the yogiisms and i think there's just a little bit of a recency bias that's what people remember because it's what happened most recently you know i i think grandpa was a great player he would never tell you that he liked to tell you about all the accomplishments he had with his teammates and and you know he would he would sooner tell you about a home run mickey mantle hit or a great game whitey ford pitch then he would tell you anything about himself mm-hmm. so he just wasn't the type to, to brag on himself which is why we've got to do it for him mm. <laughs> so you said he grew up in st louis we know that he was in the navy he was on the beach in normandy he uh he volunteered for the navy and he only grandpa could be bored in basic training so he volunteered <laughs> again for what they were calling a secret mission turned out to be the rocket boats so he was a machine gunner on an lcss landing craft support small uh, providing cover fire for our troops going ashore on omaha beach so during the whole invasion he was shooting you know providing cover fire and then in the 10 days following the D-Day invasion, he had the unpleasant task of pulling the bodies of his fallen oh, comrades God. out of the water. Um, definitely a, a defining experience in, in grandpa's life. And at one time in his military experience, he got shot in the left hand? Yeah, it was. we're not actually sure if it was in the in D-Day or if it was the invasion of Southern France that was shortly, shortly after he saw combat in a few different um, areas. Um, but yes, he, he took either a bullet or a piece of shrapnel to the hand. He was nominated for the Purple Heart, but he declined to fill out the paperwork because he didn't want his mother to worry when she got the telegram telling him he was wounded. So we never actually got his Purple Heart. Oh my God. Such a... Always thinking about other people. (laughs) Such a yogi thing. And of course, there are the yogi-isms that you referred to that we all still quote from time to time if you come to a fork in the road take it it's deja vu all over again it ain't over till it's over my favorite was nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too crowded you can observe a lot by what did he say all these things or is it possible is it possible lindsay that he's been given a couple of these things that he didn't actually say. All of the ones that you said, he definitely said. Uh, there is another yogiism. I really didn't say all the things I said, but the ones that are not true are like dumb. You can tell that they're not his. Two wrongs don't make a right. Actually, the one I see the most often that is definitely not a yogiism is uh, love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball is pretty good too. That is on the wall at Nationals Park in DC. It is not a yogiism. Really? Um, but all of those, like, you know, if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. The future ain't what it used to be. Um, we're lost, but we're making good time. Those are all 100% yogiisms. And the, the reason you know they're real is if while they appear silly on the, on the surface, when you think about them, they they're really rather profound and quite genius. <laughs> I'm going to ask you this with no offense intended. Sure. All of these yogiisms kind of became his staple. 
And many of them will live forever and keep his name in our minds forever. But yet, there was always this undertone of, eh, Yogi's just this unintelligent cartoon character, which could be hurtful if he allowed it to be hurtful or if his family, if his wife, his kids and grandkids could allow that to be hurtful. Yes, and but I think that if you dismiss them as silly or dumb, you are missing out. You're you're missing out on the real kernel of wisdom that is in those sayings and the genius that really was my grandpa. And that's your loss. It's okay if you don't want to think of him as as smart. But I think if you watch the movie and learn to know him, you know, get to know him a little bit better and learn what he was about. Yeah. You really see that he was he was quite a genius human being, I think, and not just for the yogiisms, but for how he treated people and how he saw the world and how he moved through his life and, and impacted other folks. I, I really do think. He was a tremendous human being, and I was lucky to have him for as long as I did. The name of the movie is It Ain't Over. It's everywhere where uh, movies are being shown. You're going to tell us where in the Seattle area we can see it now. Derek Jeter, Billy Crystal, Vin Scully, Joe Torre, Don Mattingly, Bob Costas, just to name a few. And you can tell just from the trailer, Lindsay, that every one of those people genuinely loved being involved in this film to talk about Yogi Berra. We definitely got a great cast of characters. I wanted as many people as possible who had either played with Grandpa or seen him play. So in addition to the folks that you mentioned, we have Dr. Bobby Brown, who was his roommate with the Newark Bears and then broke into the big leagues with him. Hector Lopez, Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek. So many great voices in this film. And as you mentioned, it's at Lincoln Square in Bellevue, uh, (laughs) Alderwood in Linwood, Pacific Place in Seattle, but you can go to itain'tovermovie.com and see the full release schedule of theaters where it's at across the country. Where'd your grandma and grandpa meet? They met at Biggie's Restaurant on the Hill in St. Louis, the restaurant about which grandpa said nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> um, yeah, she was a, a waitress uh, at Biggie's and grandpa saw her going in and out. So he grabbed his buddy Joe Garagiola and they would sit at the bar and drink glasses of water because they couldn't afford to eat there. And Joe would say, Yogi, I want to get out of here. I'm hungry. Can we go somewhere where we can get something to eat? And grandpa would say, Joe, I just want to look at her. <laughs> and how long were they married? 65 years. Oh, boy. It Ain't Over is the name of the movie. Lindsay Barra is not only the granddaughter, but the executive or one of the executive producers. It is a, a film of love. Lindsay, all the best to you and the film. Thanks so very much for being with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thanks so much for having me, Mitch. My man, Jay Flo, Jordan Flowers. He runs the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. He's a jet setter, too. Lego land with the family. A Cavaliers game in Cleveland with Cross Country Mortgage. I hope you don't forget your mediocre friends here in Seattle, Jordan. Never, never. All the jet setting, it's just puffery, Mitch. Just puffery. Oh, very good, Jordan. Very good. Danny O'Neill will be very impressed. Good time to be a buyer in the Pacific Northwest, true or false? False. Absolutely true. Great time to be a buyer right now. Uh, buyers are not having to get into a lot of multiple offer situations and escalate like they were a year ago. Huh? They're coming to reasonable agreements with sellers, not having to waive all their conditions just to get considered. And they're able to get a lot of credits to help pay for closing costs or even take advantage of 
was helping buy that rate down. And last week, I understand you locked in a buyer with an interest rate, at least at the outset in the threes. People listening to this are going to say that's not humanly possible. True or false, Jordan Flowers, and how? True. So as referenced in the past, we are taking advantage of these temporary buy downs in the market. What we're doing is taking that seller credit and getting enough to offer the ability to temporarily buy down an interest rate from, say, the start rates are in the mid sixes, upper sixes, and get them starting at 3% the first year and elevates to four and then five and then the note rate. But within those first year or two with rates will come down, they then can refinance into that long-term secured fixed rate. All right. So what am I paying attention to if I'm a buyer or seller? What numbers as they come out over the next weeks and months? Yeah. uh, Two key markers to be watching is the CPI numbers coming out because the last year's CPI number will fall off, which it was a monster in March last year. If we get a lower reading this year, that will then be indicating inflation is coming down, which will be great for long-term mortgage-backed securities. And then keep an eye on the 10-year treasury. If we can get that 10-year treasury number down to about 3.2, 3.25, it's going to be an excellent time for anybody that has purchased in the last year to look to refinance and lower that interest rate as well. And if you're looking to refinance, if you're looking to lower that interest rate as well as he says, you're going to call first Jordan Flowers and his team at Cross Country Mortgage. Phone number? 425-890-2957. Jordan Flowers, the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. Great, great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Ladies and gentlemen, she's the director of financial planning at our Mitch Unfiltered partner, Evergreen Golf Call, Katie Versio. She's also my arch nemesis when it comes to financial trivia. Katie, how are you? How's everyone over at Evergreen Golf Call? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everybody's good over there. Our theme today is what? So today we're doing a market update. Okay. Which brings us to three questions. I typically go over three. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good today. So I'm ready for question number one. As I know, we discussed quite a bit over the last few months. 2022 was the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio with both stocks and bonds down double digits. So true or false? In 2023, both stocks and bonds are up. Is that true or false? It's absolutely true, Katie Versio. That's right. It is true. So the market is off to a much better start this year, even though there's a lot more economic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The stock market's up about 8% and bonds are up nearly 3%. Very good. And I am up one for one, which screams at me, quit, Mitch. Quit right now and go out one for one. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to press my luck. What's question number two, Katie? Okay, so number two is another true or false. We'll see how you do with this one. So the yield curve is currently inverted, meaning that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Is that true or false? I'm going to say false, Katie. That's false. 
Oh, it's actually true. Wow. So I know it's uh, it's counterintuitive. Typically, you think the longer time frame you have, the more interest you get. Mm -hmm. But it's actually the opposite in this environment. It's typically an indication of a recession, and you actually get more interest for shorter time periods. That's actually surprising. It leaves me one for two. I'm not quitting. I'm continuing to press my luck. I'm going two for three. What's question number three, Katie? The 10-year treasury currently pays an interest rate of 3.5%. So knowing what we talked about in number two, what do six-month treasuries yield? So 10-year yields three and a half. Does a six-month treasury yield 4%, 5%, or 6%? We know more. Question is how much more? I'm going B. I'm going 5% for 667. I'm going 5% for two out of three today. That's right. It is 5%. So it's an interesting environment where you only get three and a half percent for holding a position for 10 years, wow. but you get 5% on the yeah. short term. So it's a really interesting environment with interest rates elevated at this level. We think now is a good time to lock in return. You can get better interest rates on money markets now. There's a lot more options for investors to park their cash than just a regular savings account. It's an unusual time in the world, the financial world, and they are there for you. Evergreengk.com. Not only a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and part of the reason that we are possible on this podcast, but just a terrific resource. So check them out, evergreengk.com. Unfiltered. Episode 243 in Graz. This is what we call, you're familiar with it because you did it once. The other stuff segment where I throw a bunch of crap at you and see what your reactions are. Do you want to? Yeah, I got a story about someone who was in the news this week, as oh, a matter yeah. of fact. Oh, you do? You know, I grew up in a lot of places, but I spent five years in Ohio, in Akron, Ohio. Okay. And that was from age um, nine to 14. Last two years I was there, I made, uh, my best friend was a guy named Greg Akers, who was a big six foot three redheaded kid. I was... I'm about 6'1", six 6'2", six myself. He was a great basketball player, and I liked playing basketball, too. I wasn't as good as him, but but I loved playing. Where we had school, we had junior high school till ninth grade, and then high school was just three years. So this is the, this is the sum, summer between the last year of junior high school and the first year of high school. And, you know, me and Greg are good buddies, and we're playing a lot of ball. We're, you know, he's going to go out for the Firestone High School, was the name of the high school. Mm -hmm. He's going to go out for the basketball team, and I'm going to go out for the team, too. Okay. And we'll be there every day. And, and the coach, sure enough, came by a few times and watched us. And, and Greg, like I said, was a really impressive player. In fact, he wound up going to Texas and, and playing there for a little bit. Wow. I would play him as hard as I could. And, <laughs> and I, I played all right. But really? Okay. I, 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 was, I was actually athletic at that, that point in my life. Wasn't very heavy. Played good defense. Okay. Couldn't, couldn't shoot very well, but okay. played really hard. All right. The, the new coach who was... Well, he wasn't certain to be the new coach. He was a graduate assistant, but it was the feeling was he was going to be the head coach there. You know, kind of encouraged me and told me, yeah, you, you know, you're playing, you're playing really? hard, you're playing well. Really, I like what I'm seeing. I like, I like, I like scrappers, like guys that play play tough. Wow. So you know, it's about three weeks before school's going to start. I run to the coach and I said, well, I'm really looking forward to, to tryouts and and looking forward to being on the team. And he's like, oh no, no, you're not going to make the team. <laughs> You're not going to make the team. You're, you're, just, you're just playing hard. I, I appreciate that, but you're not good enough to play. And I was like, what? I'm not? 
And that coach was was a 26-year-old, 27-year-old graduate assistant named Bob Huggins. Bobby Huggins, I had a feeling. <laughs> Bob Huggins, who was absolutely correct in his evaluation of me. That's why he's won something like 800 games in his career. Oh. I was sad to see him uh, end the way he did at West Virginia. Yes. And, and I know he's had problems with that for a while, but yeah. I'll, never, I'll never forget that going, oh, no, you're not going to make the team. 934 wins, Graz. Eighth all time. You undersold him by 134 wins. His tenure comes to an end, at least for now, after that DUI the other night. Very messy details. I don't know if you read the details in the police reports of what happened. And this comes a couple of weeks after some objectionable language used on a on a radio, some homophobic slurs on a radio station in Cincinnati. Quote, my recent actions do not represent the values of the university or the leadership expected in this role. While I have always tried to represent our university with honor, I have let all of you and myself down. I'm solely responsible for my conduct and sincerely apologize to the university community, particularly to the student athletes, coaches, and staff in our program. Bob Huggins resigns under heat after 934 wins, eighth all time, Akron, Kansas State, Cincinnati, and West Virginia, Gras. Yep, and and actually, remember the, the year that the Huskies were in the postseason in Columbus? Yes. Um, Cincinnati yes. was there. Okay. Matt Muller, poll tracker. I think yep. we were there together covering yep. it. And Bob Huggins is in, in the hotel bar holding court. And I went up to him and, and told him, related the story that I just told you about Greg Akers, and, <laughs> and he says, I remember Greg Akers, but I don't remember you. <laughs> It's like, Jesus Christ, you don't remember me? What the hell, man? What the ah! hell? And by the way, he got up and fell into a potted plant that night. So, <laughs> you know, That's not true. Come on. It is, is that true. true. Is that true? It is true. About, he got up and he two fell in the into morning. a <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, he, was, uh, he was in his cup. You think he'll be back? No. No, I think he's done. You think he's done? Oh, yeah. Huh. You think he'll be back? I got a funny feeling he'll be back somewhere, somehow. A couple of years Take a couple of years he's off. Old, he's an old man. Is he'll be he? In his, he'll be in his 70s. I don't he's know. Older than me. Well, there's a lot of guys in their 70s that, that coach. You can coach into your 70s. I'm I think sure you he, can. I think he'll be back. We'll put a nickel on it. We'll put a drink on it. All right. It. All right. What do you think? John Morant, consequences now approaching $60 million, Graz. When you consider what he's going to miss in salary for the 25 games, he's been suspended for brandishing a gun twice. Uh, that's $7.9 million in salary. He missed out, believe it or not, on $39 million for not making the all-NBA team, which he would have made last year if it wasn't for the suspension and all the problems. He lost sponsorship deals. This guy is losing $60 million cash for his behavior the, off the floor, Gross. And the NBA needs him, Mitch. I mean, the NBA needs him. He's exactly the sort of player that you want to you want to yeah. see be successful. I mean, he's come from, from a really difficult background, yep. a spectacular player to watch. Uh, he's the sort of guy that, that you know can be one of the tent posts for the league going forward. Shame. And you know, you just ram your head against the wall. Like, what are you doing, man? What are yeah. you doing? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anyone can get to him. I'm, I'm sure someone will at some point in time, but I'm sure a lot of people have already tried. It's a sad story because, again, I think he's the sort of kid who the NBA would love to see be successful. Do you remember the name David Freeze, Graz? David Freeze, the baseball player with the uh, Cardinals? St. Louis Cardinals. 2011 World Series hero 
for great, the uh, great series against Texas, right? He had an unbelievable series. I think he won Game Six. I think he won Game Seven. He's a local St. Louis boy. He's ultra popular, and they had an election. They had a vote for who would be the next class of inductees into the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. Okay. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a story like this. I'm sure it's happened. I'm just not aware of it. David Freeze was elected, not unanimously, but he was elected to be in the next class, the class of 2023 and the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. And David Freeze says, I'm going to decline. Says I'm not good enough. Essentially, send out a big statement and said, listen, I value, I love St. Louis. I love the Cardinals. I love my time there. But when I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm paraphrasing here, Graz, Mm -hmm. when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see a guy that belongs with the the guys previous to me in the revered St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. So I am going to respectfully decline the honor. I'm not sure I've ever heard that before. I mean, it makes you feel like he deserves it even more, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of humility. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's very surprising. I, I'm trying to think if, if someone has done that before. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it has been done. I, I mean, that's why St. Louis loves that guy. Yeah. Michael Jordan is in the news. Turned $175 million investment into $2 billion. <laughs> Want to talk about how bad he was as an owner? Go ahead. But he turned $175 million investment into $2 billion. I think even more than $2 billion. 11 Yeah, I think times, you're right, Mitchie. I think it might have been three. Are, wow. He is selling his majority ownership of the NBA Charlotte Hornets. He'll be forever known as the guy in Washington that uh, drafted Kwame Brown Number one overall, the Charlotte team has not been able to get out of its own way, but he's doing quite well in the bank account, Cross. Don't cry. Don't feel badly for Michael Jordan. He's playing golf, and he's got a lot of money to buy his cigars for the golf course, Cross. He sure does, man. He sure does. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing uh, what NBA franchises are going for nowadays. Yep. Michael Jordan's going to be A-OK. Deion Sanders is back in the news, Cross. I don't know what you think about what he's doing at Colorado and whether they're going to be a a force to contend with in the Pac-12 as we know it over the next few years. But Deion Sanders' health now is in the news. It turns out the buzz of college football has a serious medical issue with his left foot. He's already had two toes amputated because of blood clots. And now he's claiming that he has no feeling in the bottom of his left foot. And they are considering at least amputation of Neon Dion's left wow. foot. That's a sad story from the world of college football. Uh, absolutely. And I, 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 in terms of how I feel about Deion Sanders, I think he's, I think he's spectacular. You do. I mean, I think what he's done in Colorado is, you know, is, is beyond impressive. Mm-hmm. The interest he's created in that program is, um, is off the charts and he mm-hmm. was really successful in his first go around. I mean, he, he's getting players to play for him. He's revitalized that program entirely and completely. I, I doubt this is his last stop in college football. Unless, unless um, you know these health issues sideline him, which is which is tough to see. But I'm a big fan of Deion Sanders and, and what he's been able to do in college football. Did you hear that Pat Sajak is retiring from the uh, the why? Wheel of Fortune because he's uh, 126 years old? I don't know why he's he's. <laughs> why retired. would you ever walk away from something like that? He's walking away from something like that now. This brings me to remember, a stump- remember the Pat Sajak show, Mitch. This is what I'm going to ask you. I, oh, okay, we got okay. we got a little stump the band for you, a little stump the band trivia for you. It's Pat, okay. It's Wheel of Fortune trivia. Are you ready for Wheel of Fortune trivia? I'm ready. Okay, Pat Sajak in 1989. Well, let me go back to the beginning. 
Wheel of Fortune was so popular in the late 80s that they actually decided to do both a daytime show and a nighttime show of right. Wheel of Fortune. Pat Sajak was the host. He decided to retire or resign from the daytime show so that he could pursue this Pat Sajak show that you're that you're referring to. He could re, he could pursue some other things in the entertainment world. And so they had to replace him on the daytime show. The stump the band question for you Graz is do you recall who they replaced Pat Sajak with on the daytime version of Wheel of Fortune? Holy cow. And now, now I'm going to give you a hint. Okay. It's got a sports tie to it. It's not only got a direct sports tie to it, but this man represents one of the great heartbreaks in Mitch Levy's sports fandom history. All right, let me see. <laughs> dolphins. Yeah, yeah, dolphins. What would um, what would be in your estimation based on your memory the most difficult game for me to remember and recall in my lifetime as a Miami Dolphins fan? Is there one game that you might remember that would have given me fits and nightmares for many many years to come or is there not? Um there probably is, and it's not, it's not coming to me. 41 to 38, the San Diego Chargers. Right, right, right. <laughs> Wasn't Dan Fouts, was it? No. Kellen Winslow was coming off the field. Winslow caught the 12 passes. Yeah, he caught 12 passes. Who was the kicker that kicked the game winning field goal in overtime to beat the dog? Who would have been the San Diego Chargers kicker who fought with Crohn's disease? While he was playing in Rolf the Bernerska? NFL. Rolf Bernerska. You got it. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Rolf Bernerska? Rolf Bernerska is the answer to the trivia question. Who replaced Pat Sajak on the Holy Wheel cow. of Fortune during the daytime edition in 1989? None other than former San Diego Chargers kicker, Rolf Bernerska, <laughs> was it at least impressive that I knew who that was after I got all those hints? I mean, how many people could name the 89 San Diego Chargers kicker? Uh, and it was a shot because all of us Dolphins fans thought that Uwe von Schaman should have been the host of Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I bring you to the RIPs, some sad passings in the world of sports and non-sports over the last week, Roz. Ray Lewis II, Ray Lewis's kid, 28 yeah. years old, passed away of an accidental overdose. 28 years old, Ray That's Lewis sad. lost his son. So sad. Nothing more tragic than someone young dying. Yeah, that way. I like that. Bob Brown, an NFL Hall of Famer, offensive lineman, 81 years the old. Rams, yeah. Eagles, Rams, Raiders, six-time All-Pro, inducted in 2004. John Madden once called him the most aggressive lineman, offensive lineman that ever played in the National Football League. Wow. Bob Brown was 81. You might remember Jim Turner, the old kicker for the of course for Denver Broncos and, and the New York Jets. The New York Jets. He made this is funny. He made three field goals in that 1969 Super Bowl win for the Jets, the Joe Namath Super Bowl win. Yep. Yep. He actually kicked one of those field goals was nine yards. Now, 
<laughs> That's right, because they had the, the goal goalposts were right on right on the on the, the goal line. <laughs> you know, I think Jim Turner was the last kicker who also played position, also played a little line. I think he did play I, a different. I position. think he might have been the last one who did yeah, that. Yeah. Jim Turner was 82 years old. Actor Treat Williams, 71 years old. Motorcycle accident, 1979 music musical, movie musical. Hair brought Williams into the spotlight at the age of 27. He, re- he received a Golden Globe nomination. He was also in the, the Deep End of the Ocean, and he was Dr. He was Andy in the, Brown in the, in the series Everwood. Mike Ovitz in, uh, in The Late Show. Was he? The one about the movie about um, Letterman and Leno. Okay. Treat and Williams was, was in that. Yeah, Treat Williams was in that. Glenda Jackson was 87. She was also a member of uh, Parliament for like 15, 17, 15, 20 years. I think that's right. Women after in she, Love. After her acting career. Yeah, Women in Love in 1969, Academy Award. Also 1973 romantic comedy, A Touch of Class, Graz. Two-time <laughs> Oscar winner Glenda Jackson was 87 years old. And that's all I got. What do you got over You got anything for me, Graz, before we uh, say goodnight on episode two? I don't think so, Mitchie. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I'm, still, I'm still amazed at Rolf Benershka. I'm, 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 I'm glad that you've given me something. To just oh, immediately God. look up when, when I'm when I'm done with the show here, I can't believe it. The and he never did anything since. I mean, no. you know, you figure you get a chance to do the daytime version of of that show that it would lead to to other shows. No, and I don't think it did for him. No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heartbreak, Roz. I remember being a high school student, and the Dolphins were down 24 nothing in that game. David right. Woodley was the quarterback. Don Shula was looking for quarterbacks. He had David Woodley. He replaced Woodley with a guy named Don Strzok, who came in and rallied them. They had the hook and ladder at the end of the first half. They came all the way back, and they went to overtime. And the aforementioned Uwe von Schaman had a chance to win it, and he missed. And then Rolf right. Bernerska not only won that game, but parlayed it into host of Wheel of Fortune. So there you go, Cross. <laughs> Unbelievable story, Mitchie. Gross, that is a fantastic story. Uh, Gross, thank you for being a part of episode 243. We love you very much. It's great to see your face again and hear your voice. My pleasure, Mitch. Always. I'll be with you anytime and, and continued success. Episode 243 is now in the books.